I remember going through uh, what they call special forces readiness evaluation. I think that was the name for it or safari for 19th special forces group. Uh, this was over a decade ago. And it, the way that 19th group ran it, or at least at the, the safari that I did, it was essentially one day of an assessment where they packed a lot in. There was a, a PT test and a long ruck march and pull-up competition and uh, a couple other things. But I remember the water portion of it where uh, we were at Los Alamitos uh, National Guard Base in California. And we I forget how much we had to swim in, in full kit in uniform, but it, it was a while uh, that we had to swim. And obviously, you know, we're in uniform, we're in sanitized uniforms uh, with no names or ranks or anything like that. And we swam for however long it was. And when we got out, uh, I think this this safari was on the weekend. And we got out and I remember there was a uh, guard unit, I think it was MPs, that was having its drill weekend that weekend. And they were in the gym adjacent, directly adjacent to the swimming pool. And when we got out of the pool, obviously we looked like, you know, a bunch of wet dogs. You know, we came out in sanitized uniforms that were sticking to us and completely soaked. And we were tired because it had already been a, lo- a pretty long day. And we came trudging through the gym. And all the MPs that were there, they were working out, lifting weights. And their first sergeant was there barking out orders to them and whatever. And he saw us coming. He was like, make a hole, make a hole, make a hole. And everybody spread to the sides and like the parting of the Red Sea, we kind of marched bedraggled through the MPs. And I remember looking at their eyes and their faces and sort of the awe that they had of what what madness <laughs> they're seeing in front of us of, of, you know, they didn't know who we were. They didn't know if we were, um, you know, already special forces, uh, members of a special forces group or if we were trying out or whatever, but they were just looking at us with, you know, kind of measuring us up and in a little bit of awe. And somebody's like, hey, make a hole, make a hole, special forces coming through. And nobody's going to correct them because we were just tired and everybody's just hustling to get onto the next event. Uh, but I remember being uh, – that was the first time that I kind of got a bit of a buzz. I was like, whoa, look at the look at the respect that I get. And I was nobody. I was, a, I think, E – no, I was E5 at the time. And, uh, you know, it had not deployed, had not done anything yet. And uh, or done anything of, of real note, so it was it was a real uh, boost of confidence and ego uh, to have that moment. And uh, I did not go on to become an eighteen series. Uh, my my life took me into a, a different career path, which I was very grateful for, and I wouldn't have changed it for anything. But on this July fourth, it did make me question. Is everyone's military service equal? Are some veterans better than others? And I talked with Charlie Faint, the Havoc Journal owner, and my uh, the guy that rides shotgun with me just about every week on this show. And he 
thought it was a great subject. And so we brought on the elusive editor of Havoc Journal, Mike Warnock, who we've been begging to get on the show for a while, as well as Havoc Journal writer Jeff Marshburn, who has a wide and deep range of military and law enforcement experience uh, that gave him a perspective we thought would be valuable. And so we brought all of us together to talk about that. If some, uh, you know, how veterans stack up, how we regard ourselves and how should civilians regard us based off what we've done. And obviously we thought it was something that tied in a little to July 4th because this is essentially our July 4th episode. Uh, and it was a great, obviously it was a great discussion. I mean, um, even if it wasn't a great discussion, I would never say that. So uh, it couldn't help but be a great discussion, but it, it really was. And it, it was uh, great to have Mike and Jeff on uh, to help Charlie and I sort through this. Uh, I think their their perspectives, their experiences really uh, flesh out the discussion uh, really well. And I think actually give some clarity to it because it is a subject rife with young, I think predominantly male concerns of ego, humility, self-knowledge. Um, you know, it, it gets kind of the core of who you are as a human being uh, when you start to measure yourself by your credentials uh, with other people and other veterans. So it's a great episode. I think you guys are going to enjoy it and get a lot out of it. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the Weekly Havoc. Welcome to this week's episode of The Weekly Havoc, where we engage in a roundtable discussion with the staff and writers at Havoc Journal, try to make a little order out of chaos. Mike Warnock is finally on the show. He is an Air Force veteran and retired Army Nurse Corps officer. Worked 10 years in a civilian operating room as a civilian operating room nurse and as a U.S. Air Force operating room nurse. Served in the Army from 2007 to 2019. Majority of his 23 years of professional civilian and military service were spent in clinical nursing, including working in several ORs, various clinical leadership positions, two deployments to Iraq, also served as an Army Inspector General. God, who did you piss off, Mike? Sorry to hear that. I just got the look of the draw, Chris. <laughs> Listen, we're glad you're on. We've been asking Mike to come on for a while. He he was too modest to put it in his bio, so I'll just say he's also the editor at Havoc Journal. So not least importantly, um, and we're thrilled to have you on. Thanks Thank for you being for Mike. Thank you for having me, Chris. Of course. Happy to be here. Well, um, yeah, it's our pleasure. As I said, we were begging and begging and begging, Charlie, finally. Um, I, think, I think I can disclose, Mike, that you're at Charlie's house right now. So it's entirely possible Charlie didn't let you get breakfast unless he came on the show. <laughs> Something like that. I got you. Uh, Jeff Marshburn enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1989. He was selected for Special Forces in 1992. Uh, had time in fifth group. Left active duty in 1998. Worked in South Central L.A. as part of LAPD and then re-enlisted after 9-11 and was assigned to 3rd Special Forces Group, attended OCS, which we don't hold against him, and was imported, appointed as an infantry officer, commanded two companies in the 82nd Airborne Division before attending Columbia University, not the country, and serving as a tactical officer and regimental XO at the United States Military Academy at West Point. He retired from the Army in 2016, has been working in East Texas law enforcement 
ever since then. He has combat deployments in Africa, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Jeff, thanks a million for being here. Hey, thanks, Chris. I appreciate it, and I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to be here and join y'all. Now, we do not uh, share the video feed. We don't put that out. We're all on video so we can see each other and have a you know semi-realistic conversation as though we're all sitting in one room. But as a result, people listening will not know that Jeff is our very first guest to record from a patrol car. And uh, I think everyone should take that the into front account. Seat, the front seat of the patrol car. For now. As I said, for now. We don't know <laughs> where we're going to be at the end. But yeah, for now, right now, we're all in the front seat. That's right. And then um, what we'll see is, uh, well, anyway, we're thrilled Jeff's here. It, it, I, I, I'm putting this out here just on the off chance that this happens. Jeff, is there any chance you can get called out in the middle of this? Um, I mean, only if there was something super significant happening, you know, a, uh, something extremely violent, something along those lines. The chances of that are pretty low, which is, uh, which is, um, it is what okay. it is. So I we'll, got you. We'll figure out the, yeah. So. All right. No, no. I love it. Uh, that would also be a first for us if our podcast was interrupted <laughs> by a uh, burst of gunfire or anything crazy like that. Okay. Well, we're glad you're here. Charlie Faint, of course, is with us. Charlie's an active duty Army intelligence officer, deputy director of the Modern War Institute at West Point. Previous assignments throughout special operations, including JSOC, seven deployments in addition to operational tours in Egypt, the Philippines, and Korea. Three master's degrees, currently a PhD candidate, executive director of the Second Mission Foundation, and owner of the Havoc Journal. Hi, Charlie. Hey, Chris. Glad to be back, especially to be here with my my friend Mike Warnock, who's been my best friend since eighth grade, and Jeff Marshburn, who I got to work with here at West Point for a number of years. And I just got my fingers crossed that this doesn't suddenly turn into an episode of Cops and Jeff has to take off on us. So uh, uh, fingers crossed, you guys. I mean, there's enough. If I do have to take off, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to leave the video on for as long as I can. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. There's an upside and there's a downside to that. This could be great for us. I don't know. Um, so listen, we're recording this a day before 4th of July. This will, uh, air. If you're listening to us right now, uh, you're listening to us sometime after 4th of July. So we're going to have this as a kind of informal 4th of July based episode. And one of the, as I kind of told you guys, when we're going into this, what I thought might be appropriate for the 4th of July was to talk a little bit about, uh, how veterans view their own veteran status and how civilians view veterans veteran status. And I summed that up in the one question, are some veterans better than others? So uh, a little bit of level setting. I was watching, I was going down a rabbit hole of watching different comedy clips about a week ago. And I saw a clip of Bill Burr on Conan O'Brien. And he was talking about a gig he did at a VFW where he had made a joke that uh, he, he wasn't going to get something to the effect if he wasn't going to give all veterans, you know, applause and thank you for your services, because he's like, hey, look, if you invaded Normandy, of course, but if you're just like sitting there, you know, ticking boxes, uh, you know, on a checklist in some warehouse somewhere, he's like, I mean, I, I could do that. You know, there's no magic to that. And uh, I thought it was interesting uh, for a number of reasons. And he talked about the pushback that he got in some of the veteran community and then applause he got in other parts of the veteran community. And it went to something that I've seen, and I'm sure you guys have seen in your experience, where, you know, that kind of walk in the room swagger that you get if you come in with the right tabs and badges or if you don't have them 
or if you voice an opinion and you're one kind of person and you voice opinion and you're with a different kind of unit or in a different atmosphere, we have these uh, and it, I, I think it's true not just in the military, but anywhere in any profession, there's going to be a hierarchy uh, based on accomplishment and based on experience and based on um, your associations. But probably no, no more so, uh, no, nowhere better, more so than in the military, because in the military, obviously, your resume is on your uniform uh, in most environments. So you naturally have a little bit of WASTA um, in any room you walk into. So let's talk about just how veterans or current service members treat each other before we talk about the civilian component. So, uh, Charlie, let me start with you. Um, You're still on active duty. So you walk into a room. Do you size people up um, by their uniforms, by who they are, what they've done? Or are you taking everybody at face value and just letting them speak for themselves and able to divorce their accomplishments from their current actions and words. I, I wish I could say it's the latter, but I think if most vets are honest, if most people are honest, then it's the former. So we're, we're always kind of looking and judging. And that's why we have these certifications and badges and tabs and things to begin with to, to set aside people who've done something really special. Like if you look at Jeff Marshburn in his uniform, I mean, there's there's no part of his body that's not covered by some type of accomplishment in him. So um, I, for me, I do judge a little bit, at least at first. So Especially, especially now that, that we've been at war for so long, been at war for over 20 years. If someone doesn't have a combat patch and they've been in for over the 10 years, then I, I mentally tend to judge them. And that's not right because there is any reason, any number of reasons why they might not be wearing it. I remember one of the, the women that I worked with at JSOC, who actually was the squadron XO before me, she didn't wear anything that she wasn't required to wear. So she wore her name tape, U.S. Army, and her rank and the unit patch. Never wore a combat patch. I know she deployed. I was there with her. Um, so it's, but it's, that's also sort of a humble brag, right? I, I guess, I guess for her, but for a lot of people who don't know her, they would just sure. assume that she never deployed. In fact, some of the writing styles similar to mine wrote a, uh, uh, an article about this called light on the right a couple of years back and, and talked about now uh, this, this very issue. So for me, I do try to, uh, I, I mentally judge it, but I try not to hold that against somebody because, you could have every badge in the world and and still be a dirtbag. Bo Bergdahl's got a CIB and a combat patch. Doesn't make him a good person. Doesn't even make him a good soldier. So I do think that there is some of that going on, Chris. Jeff, since you were name-checked, I'll let you defend yourself. Uh, what do you think? I mean, you're somebody, obviously, that is walking into a room with a lot of fruit salad on the uniform. Uh, do you expect a certain degree of deference, especially if you have somebody that doesn't have a lot on it and is trying to have a peer-to-peer conversation with you? Or do you have to take a second and kind of push all that aside uh, to have that conversation? Um, No, I I wouldn't say that I personally ever expected any deference, but I agree with Charlie in the sense of you walk into a room, and this was common at West Point where there's so many different branches and so many different people and you don't know a lot of people. So you walk into a room and there's, I mean, just every branch and a bunch of instructors and all that kind of stuff. And and you do – size people up, but in the sense of who has a shared experience that I might be able to relate to as I'm trying to, um, you know, get an initiative accomplished or, or build a bridge to be able to, um, to, to accomplish something, you know, like for instance, when Charlie and I first met, we were out at, at a kind of austere camp at West Point, if there is such a thing. And, um, I didn't know who he was, he didn't know who I was, but we walked into this thing and 
I did. I looked at Charlie's shoulder. He's, he had a SF combat patch and um, we, we talked for, for a moment and that just the combat patch enabled a quick conversation of kind of the, who do you know, where have you been kind of thing. And, and very quickly we realized that we had a, had a lot in common. Having said that, I don't hold it against people, but it definitely informs a, a bridge or a conversation that, that may happen later. If that, if that makes sense. It, it does make sense. I want to ask a, a follow-up to that. So have you ever been disappointed by who somebody was like you start having a conversation with somebody and let's say you're both in sanitized uniforms and and you're kind of having a peer-to-peer conversation and then you start to realize oh wait you're not um an 18 series you're not uh, a long tabber or you're somebody else that has a different perspective where it just changes the color of that conversation. And suddenly you're like, I don't think this is a peer to peer conversation. I think this is, I, I think, uh, you know, and I, and, and there's kind of a, I hope I'm phrasing this right. You know, there's kind of a, a, a social divide where you kind of realize, I don't think you're the guy I need to be talking to right now. Does that kind of make sense? So I would, yeah, I understand exactly what you're saying, Chris, but I think it's the other way around. So, if we're in sanitized uniforms and we're just talking, um, a person's value emerges if you're speaking to them from my, from my background and experience where I've been disappointed is when you talk to someone, they do have all that stuff on your uniform. And then as you're talking to them, you suddenly realize like, okay, this, this guy or gal made it through some stuff, but they're, they're, they're not in the same league that I'm playing in or, or they're not really the person, you know, that, that, that they're meant to be. And sadly, if, uh, if I could say this, the the place I see that the most is with like a ranger tab, right? Mm-hmm. So in the army, everybody sees a ranger tab and and has this vision of you know Black Hawk Down and 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 those guys and 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 things of, along those lines. Unfortunately, in the infantry, um, many officers have ranger tabs and many do not live up to the ideals that we would expect from somebody who's ranger qualified. So you start talking to somebody and you realize like man, that was a flash in the pan for this guy 15 years ago and they have not lived up to the ideals. And that's really the more disappointing thing. Mm-hmm. Not, not if I'm talking to somebody and, you know, I assume that they're, you know, super badged or tabbed out. Um, the disappointment comes is when they do have that stuff and they're not living up to the ideals of, of what those mean to me personally. Yep. That makes a ton of sense. Mike, how do you feel, um, about that? Uh, just give me your general take on, that hierarchy when you were in uniform and you walked into a room, how did you feel? How did you relate? What was your takeaway? Sure. Uh, My impression was always, I cannot put myself in the same league with either Jeff or Charlie. Uh, The AMED is a completely different animal. It's a different world within the army. And uh, I just, I always saw myself as I am in a completely different category and I'm not in, I'm not in the same space as these guys. Um, I also see how that that same level of judgment happens within your own MOS or within your own specialty, uh, because there's a medical hierarchy, right? Um, also, and that's uh, that's my my initial assessment. Is you can you can look at someone and if they're tabbed out, you're gonna you're gonna expect a certain uh, quality of individual, and as as they sort of reveal who they are through conversation or whatever they're presenting. Um, you get to see, can they back up what it is that they're, uh, that, you know, that they're advertising. Um, that's my, 
Yeah. Is it fair to say, um, I'll open this up to, to anybody. Is it fair to say that everybody is looking up to somebody else? I, I know, Charlie, you and I had this conversation once where it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. You're always going, yeah, I might have done X, Y, and Z, but I didn't do what that guy did. And there's almost always somebody that you're looking up at. Is, is that true for everybody or is that just me? Chris, if I can add, I would say that that's true. And I also think that um, that there is an expectation. So you talked about somebody with my qualifications walking in a room, and I get this in law enforcement too. Uh, people who know my background in law enforcement, and it's not hidden because it's on my resume and everything else, um, but they expect a certain level of performance. And I, I tell my wife and friends all the time, like, one of my toughest jobs really is not doing you know, the day-to-day routine of a law enforcement officer or a special forces guy or whatever, but really the toughest thing is living up yeah. to my resume and living up to, to what's on paper. And I, I take that personally. That's a personal thing on me as a veteran to live up to what not only I expect of myself, but what other people expect of myself. And I think that that's, you know, this may be segueing in other parts of this conversation, but when the public looks at us, um, you know, they, the, the, the officers that I work with, the the law enforcement officers that I work with who have never been in the military, when they learn my background, they expect a certain level of professionalism, performance, physical prowess, all that kind of stuff. And I'm not, if I'm not living up to that, then it's, then, then I feel that, that pressure. So I think that that's something as well. 100%. I I can absolutely relate to that. So how much of this is, so since we are all acknowledging, look, there is a hierarchy and, and again, not, unique to the military, but the military probably exemplifies that more uh, more acutely than most other professions. Is this good? Is it uh, how much of this is ego? How much of this is kind of that that noble obligation to live up to whatever accomplishments we have on behalf of those that we represent? Um, is, is this a generally good thing or is this something that um, you know, does boil down to basically one big dick measuring contest and boy, if only we were all better people and we could move past this, Mike, what, let me start with you. What do you think? Um, I think it depends on the person. I think if it changes your motivation, are you doing it? Are you doing, is your motivation to be driven to excel based on, based on your resume purely, or you as an individual, as a person, just like Jeff articulated. He takes it personally. He takes it seriously. That's basically describing how it's in his heart. And that's really what I looked for in people. I I can't make people care. And so I would look for that and cultivate that in uh, my fellow soldiers. I'd like to add one more thing to my time in the Air Force um, uh, was eye-opening to me because I as an Air Force officer, I looked up to the Army, generally speaking, because it was more military, right? Mm-hmm. More HUA. Mm-hmm. What was interesting was deploying as an Air Force officer, doing the same job, and then deploying later on as an Army officer in the same job. And so I got to experience what it's like as an Air Force officer looking up to the Army. Then I was in the Army, and I could see the other Air Force people doing exactly what I did uh, years before, just how they, they hold you in a different light. What what did that mean for you? Like, how did you take that? Did you notice that you kind of had a bit more, let's call it bounce in your step when you entered the room because you you knew how they were seeing you? Or were you like, hey, let me let me be really humble about this because 
I'm, uh, you know, now that I've seen both sides, you know, the man on the other side of the curtain ain't that impressive. I mean, wh- how did you play that? What did you feel? My, my take was I never wanted people to feel uncomfortable around me. All right. So I always saw if you're in charge and and you're responsible for things uh, and you ha- and the higher up you go in rank and responsibility, it was part of your job to as long as folks are doing their job. I don't want people I don't want people being uncomfortable unnecessarily. Right. Sure. Um, so I, I always wanted people at ease. It probably has a lot to do with being a nurse as well. Um, I, par, uh, my daily That's life, I, I, saw, I saw people afraid every day. It was my job yeah. to help sort of diffuse that as best I could. So for me, it translated to that. So no. Um, so I look at, um, I look at Charlie, I look at Jeff, there, there's no, uh, there's no bragging. There's no boastfulness, right? You can tell, you can sort of tell when folks are humble and, uh, and really, for me, that just generates more respect uh, in me. So, Charlie, I'm gonna I'm gonna look at this. I, I don't know how much I'm gonna believe anything I'm about to say. This might just be a devil's advocate position, but I want to run this by you. Obviously, we don't have a draft when you join the military. You're a volunteer, and then, as we all know, you start to volunteer your way through the military. You volunteer for an airborne unit. You volunteer for, like in Jeff's case, SF. You volunteer for all these different assignments. And obviously there is going to be a certain degree of WASTA, of respect, of swagger that you take, um, if not for yourself, in the eyes of others, just because you have volunteered and successfully volunteered repeatedly for more and more physically and in some cases mentally demanding assignments. In your experience, Charlie, you volunteered repeatedly for a bunch of things. What motivated you to do it? Because, and I, I, this is getting, I think, to the heart of why veterans look at each other with the, in this sort of hierarchy, because something was motivating you not to volunteer only so many times and then stop. You wanted to keep pushing and you wanted to keep doing more and more things um, until you didn't. So was there a certain moment where you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do JSOC and I'm uh, and obviously he's a support guy, but you know, you're, you're pushing your intelligence career as far as you could in that lane. Um, I mean, there has to be a sense of pride and a sense of, you know, I don't want to say ego, but a sense of, yeah, I want to accomplish these things and I'm going to volunteer until I get that sense that I'm looking for. Right. Well, it's interesting is it's a bit of a family business. So my father was also in fifth group uh, a little bit before Jeff's time, not much, but a little bit before Jeff's time in fifth group. And uh, my dad also went on to command the organization that that is popularly referred to as Task Force Orange. And of course, he and Mike's dad spent uh, a considerable amount of time together in JSOC. That's how Mike and I met, went to the same high school in Fayetteville, et cetera. So for me, I always knew that I was going to be special forces. Now, I ended up not going that route for a number of different reasons. I was a support guy in SF unit, so I, I was in fifth group eventually as well as an intel guy, not an operator like Jeff. So for me, um, it's just kind of what I always expected to do. Of course, I would grow up and join the Army and, and be in special units like my father. But then once I got into that community, it just it just fit. Like I had a hard time, Chris, in the conventional army, and anyone who knew me back then will, will verify that. Um, I tried to get out twice. I thought I was going to get kicked out once, and then I got into soft, and things got a lot better. Just a nat- more natural fit for my personality, what I wanted to do, and the freedom that I felt I needed to to bring the most out of me. So that's how I got into it, and then you know I got my foot in the door with fifth group, 
And then 160th was literally across the airfield. I went and hung out with those guys for a little while. And then I got promoted out of the job at 160th. I had to go do something else. And then I remember there's this unit called JSOC and this thing called the Joint Exploitation Squadron sounded new and sexy. So I got to go go do that for a little while. But bef- before we go on, I do, I do want to go back just a, a little bit to the discussion we had about nobody being, uh, someone always being cooler than somebody else. I think I might have the exception to that rule, Chris, and Jeff might, might be able to back me up on this. So we had a, a guy here named Liam Collins, who was a, a special forces colonel who recently retired. We should have him on the show one day because he's hilarious. Princeton PhD. Uh, special forces qualified Delta operator with a combat halo drop. So he might literally be the coolest army officer ever. Uh, Jeff, I don't know if you have any feelings on, on Colonel Collins. Yeah. Colonel Collins was amazing. And, and not, and not only that, but outside of the military, I mean, he was doing, he was like a top competitor in Spartan races, like winning, you know, just, just winning ultimate races and endurance races. I mean, the guy was a, was a force to be reckoned with. But if you passed him on the street, you wouldn't even you wouldn't connect the prowess that Charlie's talking about with with the man. He's he's a very unassuming, very humble, very quiet um, professional. You know, he he really he really embodied embodied that quiet professionalism that we learned at fifth group so many years ago. And um, didn't brag, didn't do anything. You know, you just kind of either knew him or you didn't. And like I said, you he didn't look like what the you know the the stereotype that I think the public has of what an operator of Colonel Collins um, stature looks like. I mean, he just, he was very unassuming and just a great, great, uh, just an amazing man. Yeah. It's, it sounds like he's uh, done an okay job getting his life together. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, that, that's right. And so, and it's interesting because what I was thinking when you're saying that Jeff is, um, you know, in an organization like the military where credentialing is so important because that's really what we're talking about. Um, at some point, I think you do pass a threshold where the credentials no longer matter and where um, and, and there's I think and you guys can back me up or disagree as you see fit. But to me, it seems like there's that's kind of the place that ultimately so many. Well, I'll, I'll let me speak for myself and not speak for others. I, I, to me, that seemed like the sexiest place to be when you've done enough that you feel a sense of of accomplishment internally that you don't need the external um, accreditation or uh, you know an external show of it and you're just kind of and you're just kind of in that Zen place where everything's making sense and you're comfortable with yourself you're in I'm gonna sound very new agey with this but you're in harmony with yourself and you don't you don't have a, a driving insecurity that is pushing you to hey I need this tab I need this badge not to say that Insecurity is the only thing that drives you to get tabs and badges, but where the tab or the badge is a unfoldment of your personality, not an accretion that you're trying to get just to resume build. Does that kind of make sense? Am I going to something? No, it, it makes sense to me what I think the, the, not the problem when in the military, since you PCS and you move every three or four years, you're constantly having to reestablish yourself. And I used to tell people, especially like young cadets at, at West Point, as I mentor them, you know, tabs and badges and all that stuff that just gets your foot in the door, but then you have to open your mouth. Right. Right, right. So, so at any given unit, it takes as an officer or even as an NCO, it, I mean, it, it takes a good six to eight months for people, for you to get to that, to that harmony that you're talking about. Um, and I think the more humble you are and the more knowledgeable you are without pushing it on people, the quicker that you get there. 
but the PCS culture in the military really lends itself to kind of having to redo that every, every two to three years in, in my, uh, in my experience, at least. Thanks for saying that, Jeff. I, I, I didn't even put that together and you're 100% right. And I'll, I'll share my personal take on it if I can. Um, it, I remember at, at, right out of the bat at basic, um, the first, when I left basic, uh, you know, I felt after 10 weeks that I'd really, you know, become something I was, uh, become the, whatever the platoon leader and honor grad and all that. And I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm really, you know, boy, I, I, I've developed trust with the drill sergeants and all that. And then you move and yeah, you're a freaking basic graduate going to AIT. You're a nobody. You've done nothing. You've seen nothing. And more importantly, no one sees the value in you because they can look at your uniform and see that you're fuzzy on both sides, that you're not even in a unit. So uh, basically you're nothing. And I was like, wow, all that work really hasn't translated into one modicum of respect uh, after 10 weeks. And obviously, you know, that's fine. That's basic. And that's just kind of how it is. But that's a microcosm of, I think, what you're talking about, Jeff, where when you do move constantly every three years, you do have to reestablish yourself in every place. And nobody has anything to go on with you, especially if they're just meeting you face to face and not seeing your actual written resume, except what's on your uniform. So there is a a lot of emphasis placed on those accomplishments to do the talking for you initially. But it does get easier as you spend time in the military. So, you know, my first PCS move, it took a long, it took longer than my second one and my third one and my fourth one. And by the time you get to a point where you PCS somewhere and your name is kind of known because of what you've done in your past. And again, that goes back to your, your attitude and your professionalism more than your badges. So like, you know, I walked into West Point and um, I got to West Point the same time that General Clark got there and he and I kind of knew each other, right, right. From, from, from previous right. deployments. And so, um, you know, at least somebody's able to say, hey, I know Jeff Marshburn, I know Charlie Fane, I know, right. I know Mike, I know Chris. This is who they should be as long as something hasn't changed. And so your reputation is something that you carry with you. Um, so you're, again, I, I always go back to badges and tabs and qualifications foot in the door, but everything after that, you know, you got to open your mouth and, and, and you've got to prove that you are who you say you are or who your reputation, um, how your reputation precedes you. I, I love it. And that actually reminds me of, um, 20 something years ago when I did stand up. that was the, um, that was kind of the attitude that people had in stand up comedy. They said, um, and I used to see this in, a, in the comedy rooms I was working. I remember we had, um, and I'm going to, dime some people out because I don't really care. But I remember, uh, God, it was D.L. Hughley, I think, came in to the room or Damon Wayans or somebody like that. And they came in and because they were a name, everybody in the room, like the audience just was G'd up and, you know, and they came in and the first five minutes, everybody was, they couldn't say anything that was not funny. But I forget exactly who it was, so I can't really dime anybody out because I don't remember exactly who it was. But whoever it was, Damon Wayans, D.L. Hughley, somebody like that, uh, didn't they didn't have any prepared material. So they were just initially just talking and everybody was laughing because they were just making snide comments. And then when people realized they didn't have any prepared material and they were just kind of BSing, and they turned it into, I think, like a 45-minute set, which in a showcase nightclub is supposed to be 15-minute sets. And so they bounced all the other comics that were supposed to come on after them, and they just went long. They just basically closed out the night. And people actually started getting up and leaving in the middle of their act because they just weren't 
doing any jokes. They were just sitting there rambling. And that's what this strikes me as. Their, their fame or a person's ranger tab will get you five minutes. And it'll, you'll be gold for five minutes. And after that, it's on you. The, re- the novelty wears off. The shock and awe wears off. And then you actually have to produce something and show yourself to be of value. Is that a fair parallel? I think 100%. I mean, you know, and and you get a little bit longer in the civilian world because they don't, because again, they have a skewed perception, I think, and what, you know, what these things mean. But but yeah, you, you only have so much time before qualifications are going to run their course and then you have to perform. And, and if you can't perform, that that's more damaging, I think, than anything else sometimes because, you know, if you're one, if you're in the army, let's say, and you're in the 82nd and you really don't have a lot of contact with SF guys and you go on a deployment and you get linked up with a team and that team turns out to be a bunch of dirtbags, your whole perception of the entire regiment is that, is that they're dirtbags, right? And so, so for the, the people out there that don't perform up to their potential, whether it be a SWAT officer, a special forces guy, a Navy SEAL, when they don't perform to their potential, that does more damage to any of those organizations than performing marginally or, 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 or any, or anything else. So, um, Charlie, I'm going to go to you on this. Should, should there be a, are, are we wrong to give a certain amount of respect to the fruit salad, to the tabs and badges and all that? Are we wrong to give that, uh, to kind of have a halo for lack of a better word, uh, around them or, or should, is this, is this right or wrong in our culture? In the military culture. Halo, I see what you did there with that. Uh, yeah, you like that? I like yeah. that. It was very yeah. good. Yeah. So to some degree, I think it's a good thing. And like I said before on this show, that's one of the reasons we do it. We encourage people to to do this important training, do these hard things by giving them this special thing that, that, that sets them apart from their peers. But I, I think we all know that it, that's not what makes a person. And like, like Jeff was talking about a few minutes ago, you got to, you got to perform, you got to live up to it. So I think it is good to have that to some degree, but you can't completely rely on that. And I think the longer someone's in the service, the more they appreciate the support and the combat service support. Um, I think if you, you meet guys who did one enlistment, did two or three years and got out, then their views are typically a lot more myopic than someone who spent a lot of time in there. Mm-hmm. They're like, hey, if you weren't cab, you ain't crap or whatever, or, or right. you know, 11 Bravo all the way or special forces, et cetera, et cetera. But if you've, if you've been in for a while, you recognize the value of someone like Mike uh, in these professions that, that are behind the scene that you don't get a tab for, but without which we would have a very hard time in the military. So I think to some degree, I think it's useful, but you can't discount the rest of the military. There's no unimportant job in the military. I tell the cadets, and Jeff probably told him something similar when he was here, whatever branch you get on branch night, that's the most important branch in the army. This is the one that you're Mm -hmm. in. So you do your thing and, and let everybody else worry about, about their thing. And I think when you become comfortable in your role in the army, then a lot of this other stuff goes away. Like one of the reasons I was so yeah. comfortable in JSOC in the 160th was I wasn't trying to be them. I wasn't flying a helicopter. I didn't want to fly a helicopter. I wanted to, to help find the bad guys for the guys in the helicopter. And when I was in JSOC, I wasn't an operator. I never fired my weapon in combat. It wasn't my job. In fact, if I was firing my weapon in combat, that means everybody else probably didn't do theirs. It was a bad day for the National Mission Force that Charlie Fan had to shoot somebody. But I think over time, and I was the same way. I started off as an infantry officer, so I, I was pretty... Um, 
pretty arrogant. But over time, I realized like, wow, all this other stuff's important. So I'm very grateful for the folks, uh, Mike in particular, and folks like Mike who do all the stuff behind the scenes and don't get, even have a tab for it. <laughs> Mike, I feel like... <laughs> I feel like that's damning you with faint praise. I don't know. Uh, but I think, I mean, look, the bottom line is, Mike, you you knew all the secrets when you got in. Because of who your dad was, you'd kind of seen, you know, the sharp edge of the spear and what kind of individual did that. Did that demystify everything for you in a way that you were able to go, hey, man, it, it, cool is in the heart. Cool is in whatever, doing whatever you're doing well. It's not about these external factors. And as a result, it relieved you from that. Let my word, not somebody else's, let's call it insecurities, and and just allowed you to do the stuff that you were interested in and not feel like you were missing out or weren't part of the cool guys because it was demystified for you anyway? It, my experience with uh, with my dad was I saw that that JSOC dominated it, – it was very important and it dominated my family's life just because it controlled uh, when he was in our life and, and when he wasn't. I knew – I had no idea what he did. We never talked about his job. He never talked about work at home. And uh, he literally was a quiet professional. He never bragged about anything. He never talked about anything uh, uh, work-related. So I think in retrospect, that had a lot to do with my my paying attention to the level of arrogance that I that you can see in other people because my I, I knew inside professionally he probably had a lot of reasons to be that way but he was always down to earth you would never know um, I, I and I still I the only time I ever had an inkling of, of what he did was was after he died um, and that was only because I finally saw um, his CV and so I, it wasn't until I was you know almost 40 Um if I want to switch gears just a little bit and go back, touch on something Jeff was talking about. And sure. as far as um, tabs versus reputation on the on the medical side, there just aren't those tabs. Um, so reputation is relied upon uh, a whole lot more. And when you're talking uh, medical folks, um, the clinical skills are going to be there or they're not, and you're going to see it right away. Um, and so in the in the AMED side of the house. Whether you were good at your job clinically is what got you respect. Um, so there really wasn't a lot of uh, fruit salad to look at. You would just see how are they smooth under pressure? Do they do they know what they're doing? Um, and that was the measure uh, the measure of respect. And there was a lot of um, if we were getting a new boss or a new commander, and if they knew you deployed with them or whatever, they, people would always come to you and or come to me and ask, "Hey, what do you think of so and so? Or what was your experience with so and so?" And there was a lot of that in my field. And it was a close knit enough community that reputations could travel, right? Yes. Yeah. There's yep. probably for OR nurses, there's less than, there's probably about 300 in the army and that's it. Yeah. So, yeah. And this is, so let's segue now to how civilians think of veterans. Um, because, you know, th this is something I was talking with um, a person who is uh, very civilian, let's say, uh, in the arts community. And uh, very supportive of veterans, but agog at the idea that somebody could have shot at you and what that's like. And, you know, man, to be in combat and to see this. And, I mean, of course, right. I mean, they make movies about this. That That is absolutely a thing. Um, but I think we all know that there's a lot more to service than that. And sometimes... 
as much as we just talked about our internal hierarchies of how we think of ourselves and of each other and of different people and based on their uniforms and their credentials and all that, um, when we hear civilians talk that way, does that rub you the wrong way? Or do you go, well, yeah, I kind of feel the same way. Like there's somebody that doesn't have a CIB or a cab um, or like Charlie brought up before, they don't have a combat patch and all that. So when civilians mirror that, do we close ranks and go, well, screw you. These are all veterans and, and you don't know what you're talking about. Or do we go, no, yeah, I, I, I see where you're coming from and, and your, your bias is in the, in the right place. Charlie, what do you think? I think a veteran is a veteran and we all do our part in the military and it wouldn't succeed without all of us. So as much as, as I complain about field grade officers being in over 10 years and not deploying at the end of the day, that veteran is a brother or sister of mine, just like anybody else, just like Colonel Collins, just like Mike or Jeff or, or you, Chris, because I know that you spent a lot of time um, downrange as well. So a vet's a vet, and I'm never going to down degrade anybody else's service. And I like to think that I, I wouldn't let anyone else do it either. So uh, especially for someone who's never served to denigrate the service of anyone who has, I think that's inappropriate because no matter how limited that veteran service is, as long as it was honorable service, they still did something more, in my opinion, better than a civilian who never served at all. So sometimes it seems like those civilians are just trying to make themselves feel better by saying that type of thing. And I'll also say that most of the civilians that I've met, they don't have that attitude. They're, they're, you know, thank you for your services for everybody who served, not just for people who did cool things when they served, Chris. So, Jeff, you're an exceptional case in, in many respects, but not least of all, for my money, because you were out and 9-11 mm -hmm. brought you back in. You sure as hell didn't yeah. have to come back in. And you had done your time and you could have just been that guy at the bar that was like, yeah, I was SF and all that. And you had all the glory and honor that could have been bestowed on you without having to go back after 9-11 and do the tours you did and take the commands you did and, you know, go through the intense personal suffering of being an officer, which I don't know why you ever did that to yourself. But, you know, <laughs> be that as it may. Um, so for you, I mean – when you hear this and, and hear uh, what civilians think, what's your take? What, how do you feel they should regard your service and all veteran service? So I, I come from a um, – my train of thought on a lot of this stuff I believe is, is a bit skewed. I don't, I don't expect the thank you for your services and all that kind of stuff. I mean I had a blast. I loved being in the Army and um, you know it was it – was, absolutely the right thing for me and i would still be doing it today if if if, if there were some different things go, going on in my personal life um so i'm just i'm one of those guys where man i i got to do all this stuff i i, I saw a comment one time that that ptsd really is when you look back on your life and realize you'll never be as cool as you were at, at one point in time and I, I always think that's kind of funny but i think there's two things that plays at play here one is when veterans are together, so the couple of veterans that I work with, I mean, we are rough on each other right. in a in a very appropriate veteran way. You know, yeah. it's like one guy's a truck driver, and we never let him forget he was a truck driver, right? And um, you know, and all kinds of and all kinds of thing, things like that. But we do close ranks because if somebody on the outside wants to make that same comment, it's like, well, what the hell were you right. doing? You know, and and um, you know, it's tough in my profession because what they were doing is they were working the streets in a police car and they were chasing down bad guys, and that's. Man, that has its own that has its own you know culture and set of unique circumstances. But I think that um, that many of us that 
that have done the volunteer over and over and over for repeated things. Part of it is there is we have a kind of a screw loose or a glitch in our psyche that that really drives us to do those things because, you know, I don't know the true numbers, but, you know, there's a very small percentage of people, one, that are even qualified to enlist or join the military. And then when you start whittling that down uh, to the guys and gals that can go infantry and and the SEALs and the and the Rangers and the special forces and the, you know, and the special mission units and all those kind of things. When you start whittling that down, it comes to a, you know, 0.0 something percentage of the population. And, and, and I believe that, that those of us that, that do it are kind of like professional athletes in a sense, you're not, you're not whole, right? I think a whole person necessarily isn't going to volunteer for all that stuff, right? We're searching for something and we keep volunteering until we find the something or until we just run out of stuff to, to, to volunteer for. And so, um, how should civilians regard us? I, I appreciate when they say, thank you for your service. I think that they don't know how to regard us and that's the best they can do because they, you know, the, the, the numbers of people that didn't go to Iraq or Afghanistan or serve in the GWAT are huge. And we're as combat veterans, we're a small group of people. And so I just don't think they know. I think they don't want to repeat the mistakes of Vietnam. Right. And I think that they, um, they just don't know. So they say, thank you for your service. And they're like, what else? What else can I do? Can I give you money? Can I give you food? You know, it's like, and, and most of us, I think that like the humble side of us are just like, Hey, you know what? I appreciate it. You know, and, 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 and you kind of move on. Um, and I think that that increases with your years of service. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and I can't remember if it's Charlie or Mike that said it, but you know, when you're, if you did one tour or one enlistment and got out your, your sense of worth of what the military provided to you is much different than somebody like me or Charlie or anybody else that spent 10, 20, 30 years in the military because um, the guys that I run into that are those short-term veterans, right? Like I said, one enlistment got out. Man, they're, they're just as much veteran as I am, but they are definitely a lot more outwardly proud of their veteranism <laughs> than, than, than most guys who spend a significant amount of time because I think that we're kind of uh, – um, inculcated into the idea that, you know what, that was, that was a portion of my life. And so, um, yeah. And I, th- I don't know if that answers the question. No, I no, 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 no. <laughs> I love it. It's, and, and it actually makes me think, you know, if you do a short term enlistment or you get out before say calling it a career, in some cases, it might also be that you really weren't cut out for the military. And in some respects, that's why you have so much pride in it. Because you know you took a, a detour in life, and it might have been a worthwhile detour. It might have led you into something more productive. But you were like, "Hey, I stretched myself, man. This was not in my wheelhouse, and I did this. And if it was four years or whatever, I did it, and then I moved on and did other things. But I did it. Um, and I think, and I'm, I'm spitballing here, but a part of me wonders if that isn't also doesn't also feed the pride of it. Whereas for people that do it, you know, for a full career, it's like, well, yeah, this is naturally who I am. So for me, uh, in some respects, it's a little bit of a more natural, it's not an easier lift, but it's a more natural lift because yay, this is this, I was built for this. Now what I've seen as well, it'd be interesting to get Mike's, uh, take on this just from the medical side is a lot of the guys that I've run into who have done those one enlistment, they got out, they, they did some combat, deployment, stuff like that. Those guys seem to be, again, this is just my limited experience, seem to be more susceptible to PTSD as well because they they did it, they saw it, they got shocked and all of a sudden, boom, they're out and they're like, yeah, what, what the hell happened? Yeah. Whereas for those of us that stayed in for ex- 
extended period of time. We did multiple deployments. We came back, we decompressed, we talked to friends. We had other friends that were going through some, some of the same stuff. Um, but the guys that get, that do one, one enlistment, get out and get thrown back to the civilian world. Like they, they don't have that support a lot of times. And, and so the, the civilian population looking at those guys is like, man, this dude's not the same he was or she was when they went in and they don't know how to help because as we all know, the, you know, the mental health crisis in the United States is such that men don't ask for help. Combat veterans don't ask for help. And when they do ask for help, there's not a lot of services out there. Yeah. Mike, what do you think? Uh, I definitely, I agree with that. I think also that if you have first timers, they tend to, they're younger, right? They haven't had life experiences. They're not older. They haven't, uh, they're not as mature. So that, that really speaks to what Jeff mentioned about the, uh, having time to decompress. But I think also, um, I think the folks, folks that, uh, that do the one tour or the one stint, why did they, why did they get out? Did they get out because it was so overwhelming because it was, uh, such a shock or also, if they were only exposed to the military for a short time and then they're thrust back into the civilian world, how smoothly does that transition go? So I think there's, there's a lot of factors in there, but ultimately I agree with Jeff. I'm, I'm going to ask Mike, I'm going to stay with you for one second. I'm going to ask you a really unfair question. Sure. As veterans, are we better than civilians? So I I would say no, uh, because I don't like the term better. Um, it's, (laughs) it's very, it's very vague. And does that make, does that make us better human beings? I think that, I think that there are dirt bags wherever you go and they can be veterans and they can be civilians. So I would judge anyone on their own personal, uh, merits right before I would, I would say that a hundred percent. I think that's infallible and I'm going to just continue this devil's advocate approach with you, Jeff. Um, So Jeff, you brought up, you know, that in many respects, uh, veterans or current service members are a little bit like professional athletes. And then the more elite you go in the services, the more and more you really do become like professional athletes uh, because there is a selection process and you are volunteering and you are pushing yourself and all that. I mean, there, does that hierarchy extend then to the civilian population? So to, my, I think Mike is right. Better is probably too broad a term. But there has to be some extra value that we do as veterans that gives us a right to maybe hold our heads up higher. And again, this might be a devil's advocate position, but you talk me out of it. So I think, I think that um, in our mind there is, right? So when I became a police officer again after – after so many years, um, you know, I walked into a small East Texas police agency and I'm thinking, Hey man, I'm special forces qualified, Ranger qualified. I've led troops in combat. I've commanded units larger than this entire police department. And they're like, okay, you know? And so, so I, I think that we are used to that environment where people look at us and realize, okay, this is what I can expect from this person. So I'm going to expect level 10 from, from, from this guy, the civilian world is not like that. Right. So they, they're like, yeah, that's nice. That got you hired. Now go to work at the bottom level and work your way up. Like, like everybody else. And granted, like I got in, I got into a SWAT team before, before most people do because of my background and experience and stuff like that. So there are perks, but for the most part, like the civilian world, they don't, they, because they don't understand 
and they're not supposed to understand. I think like, like Mike said, it's like, it's a different world. Just because I went through the military and did that does not make me any better or worse than somebody who's worked at a grocery store their whole life. And now they're managing a, you know, a giant Walmart or, or, or something. They've, they've done their part to move our country's GDP and, and, and everything else forward. Right. No, no, no different than I have. Um, and so we tend to over overestimate what our experience brings to the, well, not necessarily overestimate. We believe that our experience brings a certain amount of stuff to the table, which it does, I believe. But the, the translation of that to people who don't, who haven't been in the military falls short. And so, like I said, you know, I walked into my police agency and here I am talking about, you know, high level organizational change and leadership development. And they're just like, yeah, we just want you to be in a patrol car and go write some tickets. And, and, and to be and fair, so, though, your experience, though, is also extra unique, I would say, because, look, police is not managing a Walmart. I mean, that's still a life or death business. And in many respects, you probably went hands on. You might have gone hands on more as a police officer than you did in the military, right? Yeah. M- yeah. M- many times um, I was told one time by my dad that uh, he was happy that I was going back into the military after 9-11 because. I was surrounded by extremely well-trained people with extremely high-powered firearms, whereas as a police officer in South Central Los Angeles, it was me, a Beretta, and my partner against God knows what when we were driving down the road. So, so yeah, absolutely, there's a, there's a level of danger. But again, I go back to, for whatever reason, my psyche and my, my personality and background is cut out for that. And so I, I trend towards it when if you look at my academic background and everything else, you would be like, Man, why aren't you making six, seven figures, you know, in a multinational corporation? Well, I'm not programmed that way, right? But I'm glad that there are people that are. I'm glad that there are people who are programmed to make exorbitant amounts of money and develop Tesla cars and all the other stuff that goes on out there. You know, they don't need to serve in the military. They need to do what they're doing because at the end of the day, just like my uh, my A team was one team and West Point is one team and the Army is one team – Hell, the country is one team and everybody has their, their part to play. So so because somebody is a truck driver in the military, a, 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 you know, a PFC, a private first class truck driver does not make them any more important than the, you know, E7, E8 special operations, you know, you know, door kicker. They if they if both of them don't do their job, we fail. If the military doesn't if the military does its job, but yet the the truckers on the road and the manufacturing facilities and everything in the country, if they fail, we fail. So I think that, I think everybody has their, their role to play. And just because they didn't, you know, get shot at while they're doing it and live in the sand and do all the other stuff that we did, that, that doesn't make it any less important. Um, I think that the gratitude that we get from the people of our nation is extraordinary. And it's because they recognize that we do sacrifice. We sacrifice a lot, not just our lives and our health, but we sacrifice earnings and we sacrifice families and we sacrifice you know, all kinds of stuff in order to do those things. And so, but it, like I said, it's a, it, it's a, it's a multi echelon kind of organization. You know, we are a country and we have to succeed as a country. No, a hundred percent. And I think, um, I think what you're getting at Jeff, and I'm going to pick this up with you, Charlie, I, I, there's no two ways about it. The people in the country, everybody has a role to play if you look at us as one big economic model. I mean, you're going to need your military and your police, but you also need the people to build the Teslas and what have you. So absolutely, everybody has a role to play there. But it made me start to think about, well, what is it that makes a veteran special uh, that deserves thanks? 
um, that deserves um, that even in our own minds that makes us think a little bit better of ourselves or a little bit prouder that um, and on certain days like July 4th that we we kind of it means a little bit more to us, I would say, than your average civilian. And why is that? And it made me think, well, what is it that's special about us? And Charlie, I'm going to throw this to you, but I'm going to preface it with my own opinion, <laughs> which is I think there's two things that drive us and 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 give us this concept of ourselves. And I think it's one, the things that we have seen. So uh, the wars, the deprivation in some way, some way, shape or form, um, what we've seen uh, of other societies, of other cultures, and the fact we've been a part of that. So just like a war reporter, when you have, when you've seen firsthand various conditions, various anthropological things, sociological things, socioeconomic environments, it, it means something to you. And, and so as a result, there's a, a kind of experiential knowledge that you have um, that does separate you from your average person that might be running the Applebee's or doing, you know, and that's all important stuff economically, but it does separate you because it gives you that, that depth. The second piece I would say with veterans is personally what you've experienced, that isolation, uh, the personal deprivation, the um, Jeff, like you referenced the, sometimes the effect of your family life, of your personal life, the number of marriages you've been through, uh, what the toll that it's taken, Mike hinted at this uh, and has written beautifully about it before, about the tolls it can take on your family and on your relationships with your kids and what have you, that that kind of um, personal emotional knowledge and intelligence is um, is not that civilians don't have that, not that people don't go through trauma and deprivation and isolation and poverty and all these other aspects as civilians. But in the, in, in, as a veteran, you kind of experience that in my experience anyway, in a, in very extreme amounts and relatively quickly because things just happen quickly in the military. You pack a lot into a career. You pack a lot, even into a four year enlistment, you pack, there's a lot of emotionally significant events so I think that's what sep- what makes a veteran a little bit more special because you volunteered and got all of that knowledge kind of force-fed onto you in a concentrated amount of time. Agree, disagree, or expand as you see fit, Charlie. Yeah, Chris, I think we've talked about this numerous times on the show, and I've had this discussion w- with Mike, and I'm confident Jeff feels the same way. There are many ways to serve serve the country, serve your fellow man. And this is the, the, the path that we've all chosen, but it's not the only path to serve. So I'm never going to look down on someone serving in a different way, but I do think what we do is special. And one of the differences between what we do and what other folks do is this unlimited liability. There are very few professions in the world that could cost you your life, your health, your marriage, your sanity, any of these number of things that we've seen it happen to, to numerous folks in the past uh, to our fellow vets. And I think that unlimited liability is one of the main things that makes a difference. And I think even if people don't innately understand that concept, that's one of the reasons they say thank you for your service. I don't know how to express this. I've never heard the term unlimited liability, but I do know that what you do is special, so I appreciate that. And Chris, I, I was I was making notes while you were talking. One of the things I wrote down before you said it was uh, we've all seen that what could happen if folks like the four of us don't do what we do. We've seen it in Iraq. We've seen it in Afghanistan. Jeff saw it in, in Africa and folks seen it across the world. One of the things that 
I was responsible for when I was in Iraq was viewing the material that we would capture from from Al Qaeda, and their videos are terrible. What they do to each other, what they do to people, and I'd much rather fight Al Qaeda in Mosul, Iraq, than Macon, Georgia. So that's one of the reasons that that we do it. So I'm proud to, to be part of that. I'm proud of what we do. I do think what we do is special. I just don't think it makes us any better. Many ways to serve, and I'm grateful for anyone in the country who's who's doing what they can to improve their community in our country, Chris. Yeah, well said. I can't argue with that. Um, any final comments on this? I want to shift to uh, – we have a whole bunch of stuff uh, of shameless plugging that we have to do. But, um, Jeff, any final thoughts on what, what Charlie just laid out? Yeah, I th- the thing that comes to mind from what he said and kind of g- – going off what, what I was saying before about how we are one country, we are one team, we are moving in the same direction, is we live in an era of unprecedented negativity. And I think that that comes from the 24-hour news cycle, the the political divisiveness going on. We've seen the last couple, well, probably last 10 or 15 years. So we live in this era of unprecedented negativity. And um, I think that we can rally around service. And I know... Um, um, God, his name is uh, General McChrystal has talked about like years of service that that he is interested in getting young people to do. And I think that we we need to place a higher value on that service for everybody, whether it's military or whatever we're doing. Um, and we have to fight the negativity because what really kills us is not not people saying thank you for our service, but the people, the talking heads, the Internet experts that go on and just without any um, provocation bash the military, bash the police, bash, bash everybody that they can, because they have a, they have an unlimited platform on the internet. And I think that, I think that's the, that's kind of the, the, the sickness that we face and, um, where we need to, to, to really focus. Again, I'm grateful for the support that the military gets. I'm grateful for the support, for the support that the law enforcement community gets, especially out, out here in East Texas. Um, but we need to really fight against that that negativity as a society. Again, this is a one team, one fight right. thing across, right. you know, all 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 fifty states. And so, um, I think that 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 we really need to monitor that and really need to be careful of that because that's that's what's going to cause the greatness of our military and the 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 people who want to serve. There's a bunch of people out there who who, who might want to serve and are turned off by that, and really who. You know, no nobody wins in, in in that scenario. Yeah, I mean, to the extent the the military is a reflection of society, right? And if we, yes, sir. It, it, the the more that we reflect society's turmoil, the more that's not in the military's interest or or in public safety's interest. And it also struck me, Jeff, while you're talking, that I, I think another thing that makes veterans special is veterans know what real problems look like. And I think some, t- I think my personal view, and I've talked about this before on the show, is that I think. We're suffering from a lot of self-inflicted wounds and neuroses in this country uh, that are manufactured, that aren't – Well, yeah, we're, know. we're so successful. We're so wealthy and so successful that we can afford to be – to have problems you know, that we have. And I'm not going to go into specifics, right. but you know what right. I'm talking about. Like, we are so wealthy and so successful as a nation – that we've manufactured problems that shouldn't exist. Right. And what veterans can offer, the, the the knowledge and experiential wisdom that veterans can offer in many cases, I think, is that we know what real problems look like. We know what real failed societies look like. We know what real totalitarianism looks like, uh, real fascism, real uh, uh, dictatorships, 
and, and I think there is a, a wisdom and a strength there. Mike, what do you think? I made the note and you touched on it is, uh, America is a melting pot. Now the diversity gets exploited for political reasons and, you know, we're experiencing what we're experiencing in this country now, but, um, that, that same diversity is reflected in military service as well. So going back to the overarching premise of, of this podcast is people serve in different ways. And that's because there are different demographics within the military and with each with different roles and different perspectives, and they need to have those different perspectives. Um, in order to execute uh, effectively. That's 100%. 100%. I love it. Mike, uh, because I asked Charlie this almost every week, it would be good to get someone not Charlie's perspective on this. So tell me about second mission. (laughs) First, before I forget, I I Uh said a wrong number, and there's going to be a bean counter out there that's like, there's not 300 active duty OR nurses. There's really 600. So let me just get it on record because this is going to be in the in the stratosphere for in perpetuity. So for the and that's why that's why we created the show alibis to cover that up. And uh, I might just edit out your uh, CYA right there so that we get everyone (laughs) angrily writing in the the mobs that will write in to say you underestimated by 100 percent the number of 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 doctors in there. So, yeah, yeah, we 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 encourage uh, rabble rousing and in our (laughs) comment section. Well, I'm happy to contribute. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah. So second mission. Talk to me about that. So second mission is really um, Charlie's vision, right? Uh, nonprofit. And it's it's an overarching umbrella. He has a genuine love in his heart for veterans. Anyone that listens to him for five minutes is going to hear. And uh, anyone listening to this podcast is going to hear the same common themes coming from Charlie's reflected in second mission. Um he wants to support veterans, and that means not only the veterans, but also their families. And uh, I, I do have to add to – I've appreciated Charlie's emphasis on that. He's made a point to say, you know, veterans – there are plenty of resources that target veterans, but a lot of times the family members of those veterans are often ignored. And Charlie's always emphasized that. And uh, um, I just want to give a shout-out to that. So second mission – uh, is going to have its its fingers in a lot of pots because that's how Charlie thinks. He's he is always he's always plotting and scheming. I, I love it. So, Charlie, do you want to defend yourself against any of these allegations? Uh, hashtag accurate. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what you get when you know when a guy since the eighth grade and Mike and I are getting close to fifty now, and and I'm just so grateful that he's been able to to come join us for what I hope you're about to talk about next, Chris, which is what's going on tomorrow. And my, I didn't mention this earlier, but my sister Kathy is also here, who, uh, of course, grew up in a, in a very military household. Her husband's a vet, and maybe her sons will grow up to be in the military also. So, yeah, Mike's accurate. And, and Chris, I, I hope we take what time we have left in the show for you to be able to talk about vet rep and what you've got going on. Yeah, um, so to anybody that listened to our show last week, I obviously took – I think more than half the show to uh, filibuster all about vet rep and what that's about. But if you missed that or haven't heard it yet, I, I can speak a little bit to it because we are having our sneak preview tomorrow, which I can talk openly about because by the time you're listening to this, that event will be done. Uh, but we are bringing in, let's call them trusted friends and associates and uh, people in the community to 
check out our space and we're putting on, we're going to have musical acts. Uh, actually, I guess I can, I can be completely transparent because yeah, this, this will all be done by the time you guys are hearing this. We have uh, a great band that I heard first in the subways, in the New York City subways about six years ago. And I bought their CD. I listened to it religiously. Um, they're a husband and wife team called Coyote and Crow. Amazing Americana bluegrass. Uh, it was, it, it, I first met the, I knew them when I was on the subway, literally just on one stop on the subway. And I heard this music and I got off the subway and was late to whatever I was getting to because I, I just had to see who the hell was singing that. And I'm not necessarily a bluegrass fan, but man, they they bring it, and I really uh, dig their stuff. So I was thrilled we were able to book them. We also have circus performers from Bindlestiff Family Circus, which is a really well known small uh, scale circus in New York City. Uh, we have sword swallowers. We have hair hangers. Uh, it's <laughs> it's going to be a crazy event. We'll have by the time this episode's up and you're listening to it, we should have pictures coming up on social media. So if you look up our Instagram at Vet Rep Theater, you will see the pictures from the party and uh, some of the stuff we have going on. So you can kind of see what exactly I'm talking about. We have a Commedia dell'arte clown, Lucy Shelby, who, full disclosure, is my sister in law, who's doing a comedy act. And then, last but not least, we have. A young upstart, hotshot uh, music virtuoso Emily Faint, uh, who clearly, as you can tell from her last name, has absolutely no relation whatsoever to anyone involved with that <laughs> rep. Uh, who is going to be? Who is singing to the hair hanging act? So you have the audio of her singing and a hair hanging act spinning and doing uh, aerial acrobatics to her song, all a cappella. Uh, so we will have, uh, I think Kathy, Charlie is going to be shooting the video of that. Um, and hopefully we'll have that out on social media for everyone to see. And I'm calling the shot obviously, because I'm talking about stuff that hasn't happened yet. And you're listening to this and now immediately going and checking Instagram to see if we followed through and this all actually went according to plan, but I'm going to call the shot and say, this is exactly how it's going to go. So that's happening tomorrow. And uh, yeah, we're very excited about it. I won't go on too much about Vet Rep and its mission right now, except just to give the tagline that we are a cultural hub of the veterans community and world-class New York-based performers. And if you want to know more, please check us out on Instagram. I try to do almost a quick video every day explaining some other aspect of what we're doing. And uh, we have a lot of cool stuff coming up. We are not officially launched. Tomorrow's just a sneak preview. But there will be a lot more to follow there. And because of our proximity to West Point, um, our entrenchment in Orange County, New York, which has, is a hotbed of veteran uh, veterans and law enforcement veterans and uh, fire veterans, we have a lot of great uh, people in the community here that we're looking forward to supporting and looking forward to having them support us. So I think it made sense for us to be here, and I'm really excited for what we have coming up. And I would thank you, Charlie, for teeing me up on this, and I'll leave it there for the time being. That sounds good to me. I'm looking forward to the event, and I know it's going to go 100% according to plan because all four of us know that every military plan always goes 100% according to plan, and there will never <laughs> be right. any issues. There will never be any issues. We are 100% locked in. And all the more so, I, I, I think I can dime this out, that uh, since Mike and Charlie and I, in a matter of 
hours are all going to be at vet rep moving tables and lugging bars into place and moving chairs around and all the rest of it. Certainly the physical layout will be exceptional. So I can guarantee that uh, everything else will remain to be seen, but it's going to be really fun. So you guys check out our social media at vet rep theater on Instagram. Uh, and you can see the pictures and the fallout from the event tomorrow. Okay. Jeff, Mike, Charlie, thank you guys for being here. Hey, hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks very much, Chris. My pleasure. Jeff, good hunting. Stay safe, brother. Always. Absolutely. And uh, knock on wood, Jeff did not get called out during the show, which was a concern. But <laughs> law and order in East Texas has been maintained while still being. It got close a second ago. I'm not going to lie. It got, it got close, but we're good. I, I heard a couple things. I, I, I could hear the the uh, I could hear your your radio a few times. I did not hear code three at any point. So I felt very <laughs> confident that we might keep you through the whole hour. So thanks a million for being here, guys. Uh, if you are not subscribed, please do so. If you're on iTunes, five-star review is always welcome. Say whatever you want in the review. We love feedback. If you could attach your feedback to a five-star review, all the better. The show notes for anything we may have mentioned, we didn't. I don't think we'll have a ton on this one, but uh, there will be show notes at theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com or in my accompanying article at Havoc Journal or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now, you can scroll down and you will see our show notes. You will also see our show alibis for anything that I misstated or needed more context, That I, stuff that I wake up at two in the morning and go, why on earth did I say it like that? Or I should have said this, or I forgot to mention that. Uh, Mike Warnock would have had a great one, but he covered himself on the show and saved himself having to do any writing. But to all of our guests, they can also submit alibis to me, and I'll put it up on the show notes. But generally, nobody does because I'm the only one that has brain farts that require rewriting and restating for show alibis. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Jeff Marshburn, Mike Warnock, and Charlie Faint. And we'll keep trying to make order out of chaos when we see you next time for the Weekly Havoc. Uh, Jeff, can I even mention that you're currently in a patrol car right now, or is it better if we just don't even mention that? No, absolutely. I'm my uh, my boss knows I'm here, and uh, they're supportive. And okay. So yeah, no, That's absolutely. Awesome. Okay. All right. I might make uh, one veiled reference to it at one point or another. Um, okay. Bring it on. <laughs> I mean, you can't record from a patrol car. I expect us to totally ignore that. Hey, at least we're know, not in the back seat. I know. We're, exactly. we're in the we're in the right yeah, spot. Yeah, the That's right. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> We'll see. We're starting the show. We'll see where we are at the end of the show. You know. <laughs>